Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Emmett Brani to talk about Microtia. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Brani. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. So starting off, how does a typical Microtia patient present? You know, Microtia presents uh, approximately anywhere between uh, 1 to 3 and 10,000 births in the U.S. Uh, it is more common in a certain ethnic groups such as Asians, Hispanic, Native American populations, and uh, has a male predilection as well as uh, the right side being more common than uh, the left. Um, approximately 50% of the patients do have an associated syndrome with Treacher Collins and Golden Heart being the most common. Uh, other risk factors for presentation include uh, acute maternal illness as well as exposure such as uh, thalidomide and uh, tretinoin and so forth. Typically, the majority are unilateral. Uh, it's probably close to 20% bilateral, but majority are unilateral to the right side. To help guide our future discussion, could we take a minute to review the components of a normal external ear and its function? You know, the, the normal external ear has a number of components, and uh, all the way just kind of starting looking at the superior aspect uh, with the, the helix and the root of the helix that uh, extend around to create the helical rim. Uh, there is then the antihelix that is consistent of the prominence of the antihelix along the uh, posterior, sort of just posterior to the contral bowl, and then you have the triangular fossa made up of, uh, or actually bordered by, uh, the superior crus and inferior crus. Um, and then the contral bowl itself separated by the root of the helix uh, into the concha simba, which is superior line and concha cavum. And there's the tragus, um, just borders and protects the external auditory canal, uh, and then the antitragus um, that is separated by the tragus with the intercissura, or some will call it the intertragal notch. Uh, there is you know, theorized that the ear develops uh, from the hillox of his uh, with the, um, the helix and um, first branchial arch contributing to the first three hillox uh, with the the uh, tragus, the root of the helix, as well as the helix itself, and the, the sacrobranchial arch uh, contributing to the, the fourth through sixth helix uh, with the um, antihelix and the tragus and lobule being constructed from those aspects. Typically, uh, we like to think that mature maturation of the ear is usually complete around 18 weeks of gestation. Now that we've reviewed normal auricular development, where in the developmental pathway does this go awry and lead to microtia? You know, it's not exactly clear, uh, you know, what specifically, you know, causes and where uh, that issue may arise. Uh, and so with regard, there's no specific cause. I think we, we talked about, um, but there are other risk factors that, you know, that we talked about, such as, you know, exposure in utero to some teratogens, um, but it, it's really unclear exactly where it does occur. And you already really nicely covered embryology and in utero external ear development, but what about postnasal growth? How do we expect the oracle to develop as a child matures? Yeah, I'd say with regards to normal growth, typically I'd say the ear is about approximately 80% of the expected size around age five and uh, closer to full size around age eight to 10. Uh, and that also correlates with potential timing of ear reconstruction with regard to sizing the ear, assuming that the opposite ear uh, is a normal appearing ear. 
not only do we want to wait for maturation of cartilage growth, which we can talk further about uh, timing of uh, reconstruction using autologous rib, um, but that also will give uh, help an indication of kind of sizing the ear as well. Uh, you know, the normal ear height ranges from about five and a half to six and a half centimeters uh, when fully mature. And I'd say, you know, I might have probably said closer to 10, but I'd say usually fully probably 10 to 15 years, depending on, uh, you know, their growth itself. And the horizontal width probably is achieved a little earlier, uh, approximately 10 years in boys and about six years in girls. And the width itself will approximate 55% of the height. Um, with regard to the most superior portion of the ear, it uh, often correlates with a level that's equal to the tail of the brow in about 85% of people. Uh, the ear protrudes from the surface of the mastoid approximately one and a half to two centimeters, um, typically having a slope of about 15 to 20 degrees. Um, some will equate that slope uh, at least in a vertical fashion to, to be relatively close to the dorsum of the nose. Um, and when sizing the ear and when looking at the ear in terms of reconstruction, we take uh, great care in looking at the, the top of the ear in correlation uh, you know, to the hairline and also to the um, position of the lobule. Because typically when you're evaluating for microtial reconstruction, at least in the most common form, which is a you know, type 3 by the uh, marks or is the lobule type by the Nagata classification, uh, the lobule will be present and you know, the ability to create a more symmetric uh, appearing here to the opposite side is often dependent on the, the position of the ear lobule that is the remnant, whether it's in, it's often not symmetric and so you're somewhat limited by that or you can choose to try to reposition it. Um, we also will try to match the root of the helix position to help obviously with any sort of uh, wearing of glasses in the future, etc. Obviously, whenever we're considering surgery, we want to be aware of the neurovascular supply to the region. What vessels and nerves typically supply the oracle? Primarily the uh, superficial temporal artery, the posterior auricular, and the occipital are the main the branches that uh, provide uh, auricular blood supply. And then if you, if you want to consider that innervation, though we don't really see a lot of it with regard to the reconstruction itself of microtia, but there's you know the lesser occipital nerve, the greater auricular nerve, and the auricular temporal nerve, as well as Arnold's nerve, supplying the area of the concha, etc. We usually think about plastic surgery as being largely cosmetic, but obviously the ear is a very important organ in human development, and we sometimes hear about the oracle serving as a bandpass filter for sound or helping amplify sound inputs. So what are the main motivations behind microtia reconstruction? It's more of a psychosocial uh, type of intervention and treatment. Uh, there's been some data to show that patients with microtia who have ears reconstructed have greater acceptance with their um, fellow children and colleagues and uh, are more confident and have less evidence of depression. And um, so that's the primary role of microtial reconstruction. There's no functional component um, when it's not combined with the atresia repair. And obviously atresia repair, which is a reconstruction of the external auditory canal, uh, which is not also developed in the majority of these patients, will result in some potential functional improvement, but not always. Uh, and so it's, it's primarily a, a reconstructive or even some will consider it a cosmetic uh, reconstruction, but it does serve a purpose to provide more confidence and, and you know, more acceptance uh, within the uh, society. 
Moving on to differential diagnosis, you've touched on this a bit, but what is your differential for both etiology of microtia or other associated conditions we should be watching for? I think, you know, when you do see someone with microtia, which is relatively obvious, you just want to ensure that they don't have any additional um, syndromic findings uh, that could be contributing to other health issues and so forth. And I think those are the main things in evaluation, like when the multidisciplinary clinic, which we're very fortunate at our uh, children's hospital, um, you know, is important. And so that, you know, the, the main syndrome, let's say over 50% of the, or approximately 50% of the syndromes uh, that are associated with microtia, Trudger Collins and Golden Heart, but there are other ones such as, you know, auricular condylar, you know, Bixler, which involves hypertelorism and uh, microtia and clefting, uh, Bosley, Sully, Alorani, uh, Branchio, Oculofacial, Charge Syndrome, you know, Fraser, Kabuki, Klippelfile, Meyer, Gorlin, uh, Miller. Uh, I mean, there are a number that we could continue to go on, but uh, I'd say the majority are Creature Collins and Golden Har. Primarily, if, 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 if there is some inuter exposure of thalidomide and, and uh, retinoids are found to be the most commonly associated. So to say a low birth weight and you know, acute maternal illness also during you know, pregnancy. But, um, and then there's been some data to show that higher levels of folate ingestion during pregnancy can uh, help reduce uh, the incidence of microtia. but those are some of the things. Are there other functional concerns or related medical conditions you're keeping in mind when treating these patients? And how often does multidisciplinary care come into play for these patients? The primary issue, I think, with microtia itself is getting kids enrolled in early intervention for amplification for hearing. You know, 75% of the patients will have oral atresia, um, and you just want to ensure that uh, they all undergo autological evaluation, and you can even uh, start intervention as early as, you know, the first year uh, with kind of a soft band bone conduction hearing aid, and then even consideration of uh, osteointegrated uh, or, you know, bone anchored uh, amplification, you know, such as a Baja uh, as well. So those are the important things to, to ensure that they continue to develop their hearing in the way that's possible. Is there anything on history you want to be paying special attention to? Uh, I specifically pay attention to their actually speech and hearing to see how they're progressing with that, you know, and uh, I think those are the key things um, that we focus on because most of the patients we see actually are not syndromic. And so those are the things that we want to, to look at. But, you know, there are you know, some patients that, you know, also will have uh, chest wall deformities and so forth, you know, it, that we'll see that they're not fully evaluated, but um, just things to to be out, watch out for. I think one of the most important things, uh, you know, we you know want to get a good history um, of the family, and uh, you know we want to one of the things you can consider just from a wound healing standpoint, I guess, it, uh, is there a history of any chelating, but it's pretty rare um, with that. But just in general even the psychosocial aspects associated with the the family and the kids and, you know, the kids really wanting to, to move forward. And we, we include the kids in the decision-making as much as possible with the family too. And on physical exam, what in particular are you paying attention to when evaluating these patients? So the, the number one thing, uh, obviously, well, I shouldn't say that, but one of the most important things that we're looking for uh, is the presence of, you know, ex an external auditory canal to really determine if they, they have true atresia. Um, 
the degree uh, by which their ear has developed uh, what, you know, and the, the potential for normal structures that they do have uh, and in relation you know, f- with consideration for repair, uh, the, the location of the lobule and the attachment to the lobule of, to the head as well as uh, you know, any sort of remnant of the microtic ear. In addition, you know, many of these patients will have a mandible uh, asymmetry with regards to decreased development of the mandible, and so it, that does also play a role in how we reconstruct the ear as well. In terms of quantifying the degree of microtia, what scales do you typically use to grade microtia severity? Sure, I think there's the, the most common, I think, marks uh, classification with you know type one t- through four, uh, with Type 1 being essentially a normal appearing air that's just kind of slightly uh, smaller in structure with kind of all sort of normal sort of apparati uh, present. Uh, class 2 uh, is where there's a cartilage present, but there's definitely cartilage deficiencies in the deformity uh, of the ear. Um, and then that can also be, con- some consider that to be a kind of a conchal type classification if you're using the Nagata classification for microtia. And then type three is the most common uh, where they're really, the ear just looks like a peanut or a little sausage with really no distinguishable structure other than really the lobule and a remnant cartilage. And uh, that is called lobule type microtia with uh, regard to the Nagata classification. And type four is a no-show with really no external ear remnant present at all. And you started mentioning it, but are there any other grading systems we should know about for evaluating microtia? To go into a little more detail about some certain classifications, uh, you know, there's additionally to the marks classification, which we described was one through four. There's the weird classification, um, you know, with first degree dysplasia, um, then you know, not necessarily requiring any additional uh, skin or cartilage for reconstruction. The secondary dys- dysplasia that typically requires additional cartilage and skin, but all the major structures are present. And the third degree dysplasia with uh, total reconstruction required with a significant amount of cartilage uh, uh, required and really no recognizable landmarks. Um, and that's pretty similar to uh, grade three uh, on the marks. And then as you mentioned a little bit earlier with the negative classification, uh, concha type microtia is considered to, you know, to be the Mark's grade two equivalent, uh, with a small conchal type microtia, you know, being more of a grade three and also lobule type, uh, consistent with the classic grade three. They are important in the sense of they help guide you and how you want to plan your reconstruction, especially with incision making and kind of composite flap you may create, uh, for the inferior aspect of the ear that you're going to reconstruct. And are there any other labs or imaging you want to obtain on these patients? So from the perspective of evaluating their ear for possible oral atresia reconstruction, uh, we do obtain a CT scan of the temporal bones uh, to look at their Jarsdorfer criteria to determine if they would be a favorable candidate for external auditory uh, canal repair reconstruction. There are other abnormalities that are associated with microsive syndrome and etiology, uh, and you know, one can consider getting an renal ultrasound for branchiorenal syndrome, cardiothoracic imaging, for example, if you're concerned of charge syndrome, uh, and also other sort of genetic testing. Now that we've covered presentation, pathophysiology, and full workup, let's move on to discussing treatment options. Starting off, when do we usually undertake treatment for microtia? 
Consideration of treatment uh, is typically later than the parents want. You know, the parents, uh, when, the, when the baby is born, uh, are very concerned and want their ears to look as uh, normal as possible in an early age. But um, you know, when we consider treatment, uh, we present all the variety of options to our families and patients. And that can be something as simple as no treatment at all or no intervention to the consideration of placement of a uh, a prosthesis, an auricular prosthesis, which can be adhesive retained, uh, just kind of sticking to the side of the ear and covering uh, to something that is um, bone anchored retained. Uh, and uh, then there is the option of uh, autologous rib reconstruction of the ear and, and also um, a medpore or allopластic uh, ear that can be used. And each of those different options. Um, can be considered at different ages. Uh, with regard to, uh, you know, just the prosthesis itself, uh, if you were to uh, use a, an adhesive retained prosthesis, which is basically sticking ear on to the side of the head, you know, the, the, there really is no downside uh, to that in the sense that you're not precluding yourself from uh, one of the other reconstructive options if you choose to do that. But if you choose to, to move forward with a, a um, permanent to more than bone anchored uh, uh, auricular prosthesis, uh, you are compromising any sort of future reconstruction. Uh, significantly. So for something like that, we tend to wait at an older age when the child can be a little bit more involved um, in the uh, decision making, whether it's, you know, preteen or even adolescence. Uh, with regard to the reconstruction of the ear itself, whether it's using an alloplastic implant or a tolerant rib, uh, the alloplastic medpore reconstructions can be done at an earlier age. Uh, it's one of the advantages, and some are doing it at earliest age, you know, three or four, because uh, you're not as concerned about the development of the rib cartilage to help recreate um, a, an ear. Uh, and then with regard to autologous rib, we like to usually wait until the rib cartilage is you know, developed to a certain degree uh, to help reconstruct an ear, and that's closer to age eight is what we'd like to really start those patients on their reconstructive path. You've alluded to this already, but just for clarity, could we review what treatment options are available and their pros and cons? With regard to microtial management options, so obviously just the first option is monitoring observation. There's really no risk at all. And that's a major advantage. Disadvantage is mainly, you know, cosmesis and psychosocial issues. Uh, when you consider uh, uh, an auricular prosthesis, and if you're considering first adhesive retained, the advantage is the appearance. You know, it looks quite normal. Uh, the, the size can be matched pretty, very well. And so all skin texture, um, obviously up close, it may look a little bit different. Disadvantages of that, it's insecure. Uh, there's ongoing care of the prosthesis, daily maintenance, there's use restrictions. You, know, you can't necessarily go swimming, you know, with it on, etc. as your child. Same with the implant retained. Um, it, advantages appearance and but it has a secure retention uh, but it is a significant disadvantage where it requires multiple procedures uh, you have to remove the remnant in the soft tissue it really precludes you from undergoing a major uh, or any addition say major but any other additional reconstruction in the future if you change your mind um, with regard to the reconstruction itself the advantage of using autologous cartilage uh, from the rib is that it's, it is your own tissue. Uh, there's really minimal maintenance. Uh, it becomes sensate. You can, you know, uh, it, it's more favorable when you do a treasure repair combined with it. Uh, some of the disadvantages compared to the nanoplastic implant, such as MedPore, is that the cost of cartilage reconstructions are typically not as 
detailed in appearance uh, that the, as compared to the alloblastic membrane implants. Uh, there are multiple surgeries. Uh, typically, you know, we have transitioned from a, uh, a Brent technique, which is typically three to four, to more of a Nagata-style technique, which we can potentially go into uh, in more detail. But that's two surgeries, the very minimum. And associated with that, you have the donor site morbidity, especially at the chest. Now, with an alloplastic membrane implantation, uh, there definitely is less donor site morbidity. Um, you know, there's less variability in the ear itself. It, you know, it becomes and has a very good definition with time. Uh, it is typically performed in one single surgery. And that is a big advantage of it. Uh, the disadvantage is it is a foreign body. Uh, it is a little more challenging to do a procedure repair with the metaphor implant in place. Uh, and with that aspect of having a foreign body, there is a, you know, a risk, albeit, you know, low and then some hands, such as uh, you know, John Reinish is one of the more major proponents of medpore reconstruction and probably does uh, the highest number uh, around the world. Um, but uh, there is a risk of extrusion uh, and also, um, you know, fracture and so, and so forth and infection. So that is, is a risk that, um, you know, is a lot less present uh, when you have autologous root cartilage graft reconstructions. Okay, so starting with alloplastic implants, uh, when do we use these and how are they usually placed? So, you know, with the alloplastic medcore implants, uh, typically we would wait probably till age four. I think some people have done even a little earlier. But the advantage of it is that the alloplastic implant can be placed at an earlier and younger age. Uh, I think it is slightly oversized and just to allow for additional growth uh, of the ear. Uh, and so, that is performed in a single stage and you do remove the uh, cartilaginous remnant if one exists and potentially preserve the lobule uh, that exists and reposition it to match the opposite lobule as much as possible. Uh, there is the skin of the conchable region uh, that is covering the remnant that, uh, that is preserved and then one method by which we perform it is we make a long postricular incision where the ear is placed and prior to starting the procedure you know one of the key things whether it's using a med pour or whether it's using autologous rib is really positioning the ear of, of where you want it to be and that's one of the most important things you know sizing it and um, we create a template of the opposite normal ear uh, and kind of size the ear and position it in relationship to you know, the um, top of the ear on the opposite side, as well as the position of the lobule, and some people will use measurements from the lateral canthus or lateral orbital rim uh, to help guide that placement. But that is really the most important aspect of where you place it and help guiding to making decisions. And then once you have determined where you want the ears for a medcore reconstruction, you require a, a very large temporoparietal fascia flap, which you know, is a fascial flap that's based off of the superficial temporal artery. Um, and we make an incision, uh, kind of a tunneled incision of harvesting an approximately 10 by 14 centimeter uh, temporoparietal fascia flap that extends from pretty much the, the root of the ear where you want it to be placed, all the way superiorly to the, you know, to the top of the scalp or crown. Uh, and so that is kind of the most important aspect of the medpore reconstruction as far as, you know, getting vascularized tissue to cover that foreign body implant and help you secure it in place. And then once you have a, a, a flap harvested, you bring it down from the top of the head and you flip it over the implant and secure it uh, in place. And then you're required to 
cover that temporoparietal fascia flap with skin, and uh, that skin is often harvested uh, from uh, the groin region or even often the contralateral ear, uh, posterior area, to help uh, give more of a normal appearance. And moving on to cartilage autografts, how are these usually performed? There are a variety of different uh, techniques. You know, the cartilage uh, reconstruction was originally described by Tanzer uh, in like 1957, I believe, and popularized by Bert Brent, uh, who uh, came up with a, a three to four stage technique. And others, uh, including Nagata uh, in the early 90s, um, have uh, taken that technique and modified it uh, to be a you know, two stage technique. And that is uh, how myself and Dr. C at Children's Hospital, how we tend to perform it there. And so what that involves is the first stage involves uh, removing the microtic remnant ear. And we have the fortune of working in teams. So one team is removing the microtic remnant ear and preparing the the pocket uh, into which the framework that we carve from the rib harvested by the other team uh, will be placed. So they prepare the pocket, uh, they transpose the lobule in, in a more symmetric position uh, to the opposite size and uh, then create a flap in, uh, under which the framework will be, create, uh, will be placed and, and there often is the maintenance of what we call a subcutaneous pedicle from the mastoid soft tissue to that superior flap um, that helps maintain a blood supply. Uh, and so um, once they've created that uh, soft tissue um, site to, to receive the framework, uh, then we obviously have to uh, harvest rib. Uh, we typically uh, will, uh, in our institution, uh, use the contralateral rib uh, from which the ear is being reconstructed um, and usually make about a two to three centimeter incision overlying the superior aspect, excuse me, the inferior aspect of what we call the superior synchondrosis uh, that we're going to use for the framework and to kind of give a little bit of context with that. So um, for autologous reconstruction, uh, we usually create a base framework uh, that will give the shape of the ear and the, the helical, uh, the helix the, and the antihelix, the triangular fossa, and so forth, all the way down to the level of the antitragus towards the lobule. But to create additional shape, uh, we um, require a cartilage uh, piece that will act as an additional helical rim that will be placed on top of the base framework. In addition, uh, we want a piece of cartilage that we carved to be very similar in, fate, in shape in a triangular aspect uh, to augment the anti-helix. And so um, there are multiple pieces of cartilage that we harvest from within the chest. And typically for that base framework, we use the synchondrosis of the sixth and seventh rib. Um, and so we typically base our incision uh, on the inferior aspect of uh, the superior limb of that synchondrosis, which is typically the, the sixth rib. Uh, and then we will use the, what we call it, call the attached free floating rib, which is the eighth rib, uh, as the helical rim piece. And so we also will um, harvest that. And there are times there's another additional number ninth piece that we'll harvest uh, as well. But uh, so once those separate pieces are harvested, uh, we use the template that we have uh, designed from the opposite ear to help create the, the hills and valleys of the ear uh, shape and 
creating a scaphoid fossa, uh, you know, which is just the space between the helical rim and the antihelix, uh, triangular fossa between the you know, superior cruse of the antihelix and the inferior um, um, cruse of the antihelix. And then um, we will create a framework uh, from those three separate pieces typically, and then often will be a fourth piece, which will recreate an antitragus and tragus that will be in continuity with the antihelical projection piece that we call, or, and um, then we'll uh, insert the framework into those pockets. Um, you know, and you usually place a drain underneath it to help suction down the skin towards the framework to help uh, give it shape. That is kind of the basic summary of how we create the framework and, and, and place it in. We often read about different techniques broadly encompassing different steps, like the Fisher technique being single stage, the Nagata technique being two stages, Brent being two to four, etc. Um, so could you explain a little on what we're trying to accomplish between these stages? The description that we talked about previously is for the first stage of reconstruction using autologous uh, rib cartilage. And at that point, uh, what is created is uh, is the, the shape of the ear, but it is attached to the side of the head, to the masculine fascia. And so we typically wait approximately three months to allow that graft to mature and heal and become more vascularized by the surrounding tissue. And then we elevate that ear and uh, create... Um, a postericular sulcus and uh, separation from the, the, the head itself. And so during the first stage, we will um, often bank cartilage that we don't use um, to help reconstruct the framework of the ear. And we'll bank that in the chest incision uh, that we, uh, from which we harvested the rib and just put it in a more superficial position so it's easy to to obtain and acquire. And so we use that piece that's there to help create a wedge um, underneath the framework and secure it to the, um, the framework itself and it's placed between the periosteum and the mastoid so that it creates, it acts as a spacer to give projection of the ear itself off of the scalp. Um, and that graft is either placed in a tunnel to become vascularized or that we will at times create uh, a kind of a, a vascularized flap, very similar to a palva flap uh, that is often used in ophthalmologic surgery uh, to cover that. Uh, or there's some who uh, use a temporary parietal fascia flap to cover that to uh, vascularize it. But we typically tend to spare the temporary parietal fa fascia flap uh, for use in case things don't heal and potentially as a salvage. And then in order to create the skin of the um, postericular sulcus, uh, we'll uh, take a separate skin graft from uh, the groin and place that uh, overlying the uh, the cartilage wedge and vascularized tissue over that. And what considerations are at play for using a particular technique? So we typically use a two-stage technique um, of Nagata, kind of a modified Nagata technique, uh, whereas we don't use the temporary parietal fascia flap during the second stage, whereas that, that Nagata typically does. Uh, and so we will use uh, that two-stage technique pretty much throughout. Uh, so we moved on from a the Brent three to four stage, um, and with regard to temporal, uh, with regard to autologous cartilage, in a one stage technique, uh, there are times you can consider it, but it, it, it's rare that we actually do that. But you know, moving forward, you know, as there are thoughts and there are developments actually of uh, people using uh, potentially tissue engineered autologous uh, constructs, um, you could consider doing uh, a one stage technique very similar to the alclastic uh, med implant, but using your own 
3D printed uh, cartilage uh, graft. What are the expected outcomes after microtia repair? Microtia reconstruction is something that uh, you really have to love to do. Uh, and it is something that we really love doing because it is very satisfying to create these ears for your kids, you know, born without them in the shape. But it can be very challenging at times. Um, you know, we looked at our own database uh, from like 1994 to 2015. Um, initially, we had been doing the three to four stage technique and it included about four to five years of our, the, our current technique. Um, but cartilage exposure uh, is our main concern and loss of shape and, and loss of the ear itself. And, you know, that does not occur infrequently. And, and so we are very careful in monitoring these patients closely. And I'd say there's a significant percentage, you know, potentially up to 30 to 40% who may require revision, not necessarily due to cartilage exposure, uh, but you know, as wounds heal and, and scars contract, the you know their posterior sulcus may not be as well developed, and may be tethered, and, and they may need a release again and placement of another skin graft or rib cartilage graft. There are, uh, are times where the position of the ear may not be as ideal as we want it to be, and potentially want to try to reposition it so that if they are going to wear uh, glasses, uh, you know it is more you know symmetric. And so the wound healing aspects of you know, at least autologous reconstruction uh, are kind of are mainly what we look at. And similar when we do our medical reconstructions, um, you know, the acute phase uh, is, is very important to ensure that it heals. And if wounds open up with a medpore reconstruction, it is quite concerning because you have to act quite quickly to potentially salvage the ear and not necessarily have to remove the implant itself and hope that the implant does not become infected chronically and require uh, extrude uh, removal. You already mentioned cartilage exposure and need for revision as complications, um, but what other complications are we looking out for in these patients? Yeah, so I'd say with regards to cartilage uh, reconstruction, uh, I'd say the most common complication you know, is associated with poor wound healing and exposure of cartilage. And oftentimes, actually, the cartilage will heal on its own. And you know that's the advantage of having an autologous uh, reconstruction. I shouldn't say the cartilage should, would heal on its own, but the wound overlying the cartilage uh, will, would heal on its own with just you know, wound care techniques and so forth and not necessarily require a vision procedure. But there are certain subset of patients that they, that do require that. And um, Infection itself is pretty low. Uh, hematoma it can occur uh, during uh, you know, maybe the second stage. We see that sometimes over the line of the skin grafts and the skin grafts may not heal well. Um, you can often still see keloid or hypertrophic scar formation. That's pretty rare. And, you know, there is a risk of pneumothorax, you know, in addition, you know, at the first stage, extremely rare. You know, we, you know, in the 20-year uh, period that we looked at, there was only a total of four uh, patients but uh, that had that. And I don't know if any actually required chest tube. But those are things that we can be concerned about. Now, with the medical reconstruction, exposure is the most common complication that we see um, and want to be vigilant about. We sometimes hear about a theoretical risk of facial nerve injury in these surgeries. Is that something you see often? Uh, facial nerve injury is extremely rare, but you do have to be, you know, these patients do have craniofacial microsomia to a certain degree, so their facial nerve may be in an abnormal position, uh, especially if you're going to be, you know, elevating a, a large temporoparietal fascia flap or a medpore reconstruction. Uh, we often will include the anterior branch of the superficial temporal artery, which runs very close to the temporal branch of the facial nerve, and so you will probably see some stimulation of that facial nerve branch, so you just have to be very careful when um, harvesting that um, 
So that's something to consider, but it, it it's pretty unusual. And what about malpositioning or migration of the reconstructed ear? Uh, we do see malposition, you know, of the implants, and you know that can be based on whether it's technical during the initial reconstruction or uh, if there's just you know some ptosis of the soft tissue. Uh, but we, we do see with you know occasionally uh, that the ear, you know, especially when we do the medpro reconstruction, there's a little bit of a drop, and so there are times where we try to uh, fix the ear in a position that's a little bit higher, possibly than the opposite ear. How frequently do you usually see the patients for follow-up postoperatively? So we see the um, the kids pretty frequently. Uh, you know, the kids that we deal with often come very far away because uh, we're a pretty uh, large tertiary care center. Uh, but we see them typically post-op one to two weeks afterwards, and then usually a few months after that. And we keep in contact with them either, you know, whether electronically via just kind of photographs and ensuring that they're healing okay if they have an inability to come. But then usually we'll set them up for if they are getting a second stage, you know, three months later. And then after that, again, kind of start the same similar postoperative regimen. And then we like to see them at least, you know, six months and one year typically. Do you anticipate the need for future or repeat surgeries in these patients? It is something that we counsel the patients on. And in our previous study, uh, up to 40% of our patients actually required some sort of additional procedure to enhance the, the appearance and um, of the ear. All right. That's all the questions I had for you today. But before we move on to the summary and review portion, was there anything else you wanted to add? So I have the fortune of working at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital uh, with Dr. Kathy C. and uh, Craig Mirakami. And you know, one caveat, all I know about Marcrocia uh, fortunately for me, has come from both Dr. Kathy C. and uh, Craig Mirakami, uh, who developed the uh, Microsha program at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital over the past 25 years. And so I'd say, you know, Microsha reconstruction can be a very rewarding experience. Uh, it is something that I think if you one is going to consider performing Microsha reconstruction in their practice, uh, to be very cognizant of what it involves and also to try to incorporate audiological aspects of it as well. That's obviously the most important aspect of, for these kids. Uh, but, it, you know, having a we're very fortunate, you know, in our institution to have a kind of a comprehensive multidisciplinary institution that takes care of these kids. And, and I have a great mentor in Dr. Kathy C. and Craig Murakami who, you know, really want to take care of these patients from the, from the beginning to the end. Um, you know, it, 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 my first reconstruction is full of, um, challenges as far as trying to get the wounds to heal and the, the ears to look as good as you want. And, um, you know, when you do consider taking on the endeavor, uh, just, you know, to be prepared and, um, because, you know, you have, you know, one opportunity to get it right. And, um, it's something, you know, that's very important for these kids. So. Well, thanks so much for reviewing this topic with us, Dr. Brani. Thank you for, I'm honored to be part of your, uh, podcast here. So we'll now move on to the summary portion of this podcast. To summarize, Microtia describes the range of ear uh, from anosia or no ear to a structurally intact ear that is smaller than expected. We discussed normal ear anatomy and growth, particularly that the oracle is about 85% of adult size by age 5 and about fully sized by age 8 to 10. About 50% of microtia patients are syndromic, mostly Treacher-Collins and Goldenhar syndromes, uh, but can also be attributed to teratogens, infections such as rubella, or presumed vascular insult. 
On history, we should be evaluating for any family history of genetic abnormalities or hearing loss. And physical exams should always assess for canal atresia, as well as the degree of microtia. And we discussed a couple of grading systems, most commonly the MARCS grading system, for quantifying microtia severity. Evaluation of other syndromic physical exam findings, such as cleft palate, ocular abnormalities, facial asymmetry, mandibular hypoplasia, etc., should also be performed. Children with microtia should have their hearing formally evaluated, either with an audiogram or an ABR if they're too young, and a CT temporal can be performed to grade any associated canal atresia. Other workup for possible syndromic etiology can include a renal ultrasound for brachioretorenal syndrome, cardiothoracic imaging for CHARGE or DeGeorge syndrome, and keep in mind that many of these patients will require multidisciplinary care. The timing of surgical repair is controversial, but is typically undertaken between the ages of 5 and 10, with canal atresia repair after microtia repair to avoid blood supply disruption. Microtia can be repaired with an auricular prosthesis, an alloplastic implant, usually from MedPOR, or a cartilage autograft. And we discussed a number of factors to consider when planning reconstruction to include patient and family preference, patient medical comorbidities, and the ease of the procedure. Alloplastic and cartilage implants are typically staged to allow for neovascularization of the flap and reduce risk of necrosis. The most common complications after microtial repair are the need for revision surgery due to either cartilage extrusion, necrosis, or reabsorption with cartilage autographs, or migration or malpositioning, usually with MedPOR implants. However, patients and families should be counseled about hematoma, infection, and even facial nerve injury, and thoracic complications from rib harvest, such as atelectasis or pneumothorax, can also be seen. We'll end with a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a few moments to let you think of the answer, or pause the podcast, and then say the answer. First off, describe the helix of Hiss and their derivatives on the fully developed oracle. The helix of Hiss are derived from the first and second branchial arches and fuse around 22 weeks of gestation to form the oracle. Helix 1 through 3 are derived from Meckel's cartilage from the first arch and helix 4 through 6 from Reichert's cartilage from the second arch. The tragus is from helix 1, the cruise from 2, helix from 3, antihelical cruise from 4, antihelix from 5, and the antitragus and lobule from 6. Though notably, some texts do describe the antihelix is coming from 4, the antitragus is from 5, and the lobule from 6. While the etiology of microtia remains unknown, some proposed mechanisms include inappropriate growth or fusion of the helix of his, or premature regression of the stapedial artery, which is thought to be an early vascular supply to the developing ear. Next question, describe the Marks grading system. For a bonus, see if you can recall one additional grading system as well. The Marks grading system grades microtia on a scale of 1 to 4. In grade 1 microtia, all subunits are present but smaller and can include deformities like lop ear, where the auricular cartilage is angled inferiorly, and cup ear, where there is an anterior protrusion of the auricular cartilage. Grade 2 microtia denotes some subunits are severely underdeveloped or absent, with the lower half of the oracle usually more developed than the upper half. Grade 3 microtia, also known as peanut ear, involves only a small superior remnant and an anteriorly deflected inferior lobule, 
while grade four denotes Anosha. As a bonus, we'll review the Nagata, Weirda, and Jarsdorfer grading systems. Uh, the Weirda classification is broken down into first, second, and third degree dysplasia and places more emphasis on reconstructive requirements. First degree dysplasia doesn't require additional skin or cartilage to reconstruct. Second degree dysplasia has all major structures present but requires addition of cartilage and skin. And third degree dysplasia has few to no recognizable landmarks requiring total reconstruction. The Nagata classification describes conchotype microtia, small conchotype microtia, and lobule type microtia, which are broadly similar to marks grade two and marks grade three, less severe and more severe, respectively, and are aimed more towards determining surgical incisions than classifying morphology. Recall that the Jarsdorfer grading scale is used to predict postoperative hearing outcomes with atresia repair based on presence of anatomical landmarks, with one point assigned for the presence on CT temporal of an open oval window, round window, middle ear space, facial nerve, malleus incus complex, incus stapes connection, mastoid pneumatization, and an external ear. Two points are assigned for a present stapes bone. Patients with a score of 7 or higher typically have better hearing outcomes postoperatively. All right, and final question. Describe the stages of a Brent technique for cartilage autographed microtia reconstruction. The Brent technique consists of four stages with three months between each stage, roughly, to allow vascular supply formation and reduce the risk of necrosis. Stage one consists of cartilage harvest, shaping, and placement classically from the synchondrosis of the contralateral ribs 7 through 8 for the main graft and rib 9 for a helical rim. Stage 2 is lobule transposition with a modified Z-plasty, and stage 3 results in oracle elevation with a split thickness skin graft to create a postauricular sulcus. The final stage involves tracheal reconstruction. That wraps up our discussion on microtia. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.